Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. Uh, Good morning, Harvest. Uh, Let me start out by introducing myself. My name is Marcus, and uh, I grew up uh, not in the Chicago area. I grew up not in the Chicago area, but in uh, Rochester, New York. It's about an hour east of Buffalo. Uh, I was very fortunate to grow up in a Christian family with parents who uh, really loved Jesus. Um, So my faith was something that I sort of naturally uh, grew into throughout my uh, childhood years and teenage years. but it didn't uh, really fully take hold until I was in college. Uh, when I started college, I went to church on Sunday, went to the you know, college fellowship on Friday night, went to a small group. I prayed and read my Bible most mornings, but that was about the extent uh, of my faith. I wasn't really uh, fully surrendering and laying my uh, life down for Jesus. Uh, but in college, that uh, really changed. and. Uh, I, went, I was fortunate to go to a, just a very good uh, campus fellowship uh, that really uh, stressed scripture and discipleship and relationship with Jesus, and I really grew a lot during that time. Uh, when I was in college was when I uh, met my wife, Sung, who's uh, sitting over there. Um, she was a graduate student, and I was an undergrad uh, at the University of Rochester studying math. Uh, she was a TA for one of the classes uh, that I took, and... Uh, Everybody always asks if I got an A in the class, and no, I didn't. Um, nothing really happened till about a year afterwards. Um, we figured because there was a sizable age gap between us that uh, you know we could hang out and nothing would happen, that it was uh, safe, and uh, didn't really turn out to be the case. So we got married a year after I graduated from college, and she had one year left uh, in graduate school, and. After she finished, we moved to Chicago. She got a job teaching math at Judson University, and I worked for a marketing research firm down in the loop. Uh, We came to Harvest through Benson Chan. Uh, He was the only person that I knew in Chicago when we moved. We had been in the same campus fellowship together. And uh, so I contacted him when I moved, and, you know, he told us about this church. We tried a few churches out, but uh, quickly figured out that this is where God wanted us to be. Uh, Nine months ago... Uh, Sophia was born, and uh, she's been just a wonderful addition to our family. It's been far, far better than I ever uh, imagined having a a child could be. Uh, And it's uh, definitely also been uh, a means through which God has sanctified me. So um, why don't we get into the message? And let's start out by looking at quickly at the context of this passage in the letter of Philippians as a whole. It's really important when we come to a passage in Scripture to think about what are the goals of the author, what are they trying to do uh, in this passage and in the letter as a whole, and uh, what is the context that this passage fits in. Uh, Paul wrote Philippians to help the Philippians stay on mission. They were a great church that really loved Jesus and was following him and serving him, Um, but they were coming up against some things that were causing them to get discouraged. Uh, 
their uh, founder and leader, Paul, had been imprisoned, and they too were facing some outside pressure. Um, just as we saw in the children's message, Paul and Silas were thrown in jail while uh, in Philippi when they first preached the gospel there. Uh, the Philippians too were facing this outside pressure from opponents. So uh, this letter was written to encourage them. And the community was starting just a little bit to crack because of this, this pressure. Uh, we see in chapter 4 there's an encouragement to two of the leading women in the church, Euodia and Syntyche, to uh, make amends and to patch up their differences um, because yeah, there had been this pressure that was putting stress on the community. And what Paul really saw is that disunity was crippling. If the Philippians were going to stay on mission, they needed to be unified. And if we uh, also look at 120, Philippians 127 and 28, Paul makes a very interesting statement. He says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. So Paul raises the um, matter of unity to another level here. It's not just about uh, being able to stay on mission, but unity is actually a, a gospel issue. And so in the rest of this sermon, we're going to look at why and how. Why is unity so important, and how do we live in unity with one another? So we're going to start with the why question, but let's go ahead and uh, read our text for today. So this is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being, in one, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, in verses 6 through 11, Paul gives the Philippians an example of the life that they are to model. And you guys can go ahead and clear the slide. And this story that Paul tells is a small piece of a big story. It's a small piece of the gospel story that he would have told the Philippians when he first preached the gospel to them. It's the key piece of the big story. But when the Philippians would have heard this, when they heard this little piece of the big story that they had learned, it would have brought to mind the whole wide story, the story of redemption, the story of what God is doing to bring reconciliation to the world. And as we look at the first four verses, 
the big story also sort of lies underneath them. So I want to quickly take a look at the big story and narrate that to you. And then we're going to look at Philippians uh, through the lens of the big story of redemption. So we'll start in Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 1, we see that God creates everything. And he makes a good creation. And, and it's a creation that is living in perfect harmony. We, have, we had a perfect relationship with God. We had a perfect relationship with one another. And we had a perfect relationship between us and the rest of creation. And then Adam and Eve sin. They fall. And in that sin, those relationships get ruptured. Because of sin, there is now enmity between us and God. There's now enmity between us and one another, and there's enmity between us and the rest of creation. Um, we see this very vividly in the text of Genesis itself. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. They're excluded from God's presence. The very first story after the fall in Genesis 4 is the murder of Abel by Cain, uh, showing the interpersonal hatred that crept even into the closest of relationships. And then we also see that God curses the ground, making the tilling of the soil difficult, making it difficult for us to live off of the soil. So, but God, in his great love, wasn't willing to just let the status quo be. He wanted to be reconciled to us, and he wanted to bring reconciliation to all three of those ruptured relationships to undo the damaging effects of sin. So God chose Israel to be his people, to be a light, to live uh, according to God's standard, and to draw everybody to God through them. But when we read throughout the Old Testament, they failed in their job as being a light. They sinned over and over and over again. They were the unfaithful children of God. So God sends his son, Jesus, to be the faithful one, to be the agent that actually does bring reconciliation. If you look at Jesus' ministry throughout the Gospels, it's a ministry of reconciling those who were excluded. His healing ministry is ministry that heals the lepers, it heals the blind, it heals the people that would not have been accepted into the temple because of the physical problems that they had. And who does he hang out with? He hangs out with the tax collectors. He hangs out with the prostitutes and the other sinners, the people, again, who would have been excluded. So Jesus goes to bring reconciliation. And that reconciliation culminates on the cross. It's on the cross that God deals with sin. It's through Christ's sacrifice that the effects of sin are undone once and for all. It's on the cross that we can be reconciled to God and that we can be reconciled to one another. And uh, this is very nicely uh, capped up here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Let me read it to you. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So this is a work that uh, God has already done, but it isn't final yet. 
we're trying to figure out how to live this life of reconciliation both with God and with one another. And that's what this passage in Philippians is all about. So, when we come to this passage in Philippians, we see some of the same themes that were uh, previously highlighted. And the foundation of Paul's appeal to humility is interpersonal reconciliation. Let's read verses 1 and 2 again. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. We are all one family because of our union with Christ. And we're going to talk about this concept of union with Christ a lot, so let me quickly define it. What union with with Christ is at its heart is that we have complete identification with Christ. When Jesus died, God looks at Jesus when he died and says, you know what, that counts for us. We have been so united with him, so joined with him, that God forgives us on the basis of what Christ did for us. And also when Christ Christ was raised because we have been united with him, that is how we know that we too will someday be raised. And through our union with Christ is how we receive God's grace. And is also that union with Christ that results in our transformation. We have been joined with him. We have been united with him. And as a result, we will be transformed to be like him. So, we have been united with Christ. And we have all been united with Christ. We have all been united with the same Christ. We all have the spirit in us, the same spirit, Christ's spirit in us. And so what that means is that we are also, in the same way, united with one another. We are all one family. And what Paul's doing here is he's reminding them of the truth that they already know. All of us who have come to experience the grace of God are one family. And I know it's you know cliche, but we need to repeat it again and again because we don't really get it. We're all one family. Uh, I know that this has been something that's been difficult for me to grasp. Before uh, Sophia was born, I was expressing to one of my small group members that uh, I was really, you know, a bit nervous. We don't have any family in the area, and so I was like, you know, this is going to be really hard, and we're, we don't have the same network of support that a lot of people have. And, you know, I was immediately cut off, and she said, you know, what are you talking about? You, you have us, you know, talking about our community group. We're your family. And that really hit home with me, but it's something that I still have a hard time grasping, that it's really true that we are all one family, just as closely united as our, you know, biological families. I still have a hard time, you know, going and asking for help or feeling like I'm putting other people out. But you know what? We're all one family, and we need to really let that truth uh, sink in. And... Part of it is, too, though, it's, you know, we are a very diverse group of people, praise the Lord. And, uh, you know, we may not always like everybody who's in our family. You know, it's kind of like when we, we get married, you choose your spouse, but you don't choose your in-laws. And, uh, you know, it, in some cases, like, I'm very blessed. I have wonderful in-laws that I get along very well with. But I know that not everybody uh, is so lucky But, you know, this isn't about making the best out of a bad situation. And that's because a failure to love the ones that we're united with, a failure to love being one family with them, is a failure to understand the gospel. You know, God's love isn't begrudging. 
God doesn't look at me and say, oh, you know, that Marcus, I don't really like him, but, you know, he has faith in my son, so I, I guess I'd better save him. You know, that's not what God's love is like. God's love is so, um, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't care who you are. It just looks at us and says, you know what, he's, un- he's united with Christ. You know, he's united with my son. He's one with my son. Therefore, I love him and will go to any ends for him. So thus far, we've been talking a lot about unity, um, but we need to, to look at humility a little bit as that's the means through which unity comes about. Um, but as we start that out, I want to just stress that humility isn't purely a mental state. Uh, a lot of times when we think about being humble, we think about it in terms of self-deprecation and putting ourselves down. Oh, no, we're not very good. Uh, in this text in Philippians, that's not what Paul has in mind when he says humility. Uh, humility focuses on actions, and humility isn't focused on ourselves. It's not about our turning inward. It's about others. Humility is about putting ourselves down for the benefit and the service of other people. So let's walk through uh, verses 6 through 11 and uh, unpack Jesus' example of humility, and then we'll spend some time applying that passage. Okay. So Paul begins in verse 6 by stressing the status that God's son had before the incarnation. He was equal with God. He was by very nature God. So how did God's son act as God? He didn't act the normal way that you would expect the one who had the highest status to act. Um, we've seen this played out before our eyes probably in the last couple months. You know, the situation in Libya with uh, Gaddafi, it has come to light that uh, he's basically been milking that country for tens of billions of dollars that he has in various uh, accounts and investments all throughout the world. He's an example of someone who ruled with an iron fist for his own advantage, for his own personal gain, and didn't really care what happened to everybody else. And he's not an uncommon example. If you look at a lot of the people who had absolute power throughout history, they were the same way. And it was the same way in Paul's day with the Roman emperors. They were uh, really no different. So when we come to this passage and it says that Jesus was in the very nature of God and didn't consider it something to be used for his own advantage but that he made himself nothing in taking the very nature of a servant, we have to see how surprising and how radical that is. Um, It turns our normal expectations of what power is like on its head. We expect it to be used for its own sake, but it's not. Jesus uses it to serve others. He assumes the role of a servant, and it was a very, very costly service. Because when Jesus served... He humbled himself and was obedient all the way to death, even death on a cross. The one who's the king of the universe died on the cross. And that's a complete contradiction. The cross was the place where the enemies of Rome died. It's where the failed kings died. It's where the ones who challenged Rome and did not succeed died. It was not a place where one of true high status would ever end up. The cross was a very visible sign to everyone that you don't challenge Rome's power. You don't challenge it because if you do, you're going to end up like that, hanging naked along a public thoroughfare. But when we get to verses 9 through 11, we realize that, you know, it may have appeared like Jesus lost 
he didn't lose. And that's the shocking thing. And that, in fact, God puts his stamp of approval and that Jesus' humiliating death was actually the means by which we have life. That Jesus' humiliating death was the means through which we are reconciled to God. And that was actually Jesus' victory, his victory over Rome, his victory over Satan. His victory came through humility. His victory came through laying his life down for us. And when we are called to imitate God, it's that Jesus that we're called to imitate. It's the Jesus who laid his life down. It's because in the cross, Jesus revealed what it is like to be God. God at his heart, God at his core, is one who gives himself for others. And so when we are called to imitate God and we are called to imitate Jesus, we are called to follow Jesus' example and lay our life down. For we have been crucified with Christ, therefore it is no longer us who live, but Jesus who lives in us. In the life we live, we live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who died and laid himself down for us. One point that I want to keep in mind here is that we are not talking about humility just for humility's sake. I know I've talked up humility and how important it is, but it, we don't pursue humility just for humility's sake. It, this isn't about like a sort of medieval asceticism where we're you know, flogging ourselves on our back, uh, you know, beating ourselves, beating humility into us. Humility is about the other. When Jesus died, he died for us. It was a humble action to serve others. And it's not serving others so that we can feel good about ourselves, but it's serving others because God has transformed us. Because we have been united with Christ, he is conforming us to be like him. And because of that, he's, God is working in us a desire to love and serve him. And Jesus didn't lay his life down again for no purpose. He laid his life down so that we might have full experience of what it means to be in God's family. And so when we're called to lay our life down, it is so that others can have that same experience, that same experience of grace, that same experience of love, love directly from God and love from one another. And so in the next few minutes, we'll look at a, a few practical ways that we can, we can live like this. And one key thing that I want to point out is uh, texts like these have been slightly misunderstood, I think, through the history of the church. Um, the higher your status, the more God has given you, the stronger the call goes out to you to lay your life down for others and to serve others. A lot of time, texts like these have been used to keep the poor and lower classes, you know, grinding and serving those of higher status. It's been used to oppress women. And that's clearly, as we look at this text, that's not the point. The point is that Jesus, the one of highest status, lowered himself to the lowest status to serve us. But at the same time, I want to underscore that all of us have something to give. There's something that God has given all of us that we can use to serve others. And the applications that I'm going to discuss are just a starting point for further thought and application. So the first thing that I'd like to talk about is wealth. Um, I think a lot of us look around and say, you know what, we're not very wealthy. You know, there are lots of people who have more money than I do, uh, especially in a church like this where there is uh, a lot of wealth. Um, but just a reminder, in the United States, a very wealthy country, the median income is $50,000 a year. 
That's the median household income. And only 20% make over $100,000 a year. So when we look at ourselves, we are a very well-off group. Um, but generosity is, generosity is a very good thing, but that's not going to be my main focus here. Um, my focus is going to be on how we sometimes exclude others through wealth. You know, when you go out to eat, where do you go out to eat? Who do you invite? Do you ever go to places and say, you know what, I'm not going to invite that person because they can't afford it? When, people come, when you invite people over to your home, what do you serve? What are the things when you gather together that you talk about? You know, are they things that can include everyone or are they things that sort of exclude others? I'm, I know that's not your intention and your purpose, but, you know, if you're sitting around talking about luxury cars or a boat or expensive vacations, for those who don't have, you know, that makes them feel smaller. That makes them feel less important and less valuable. Now, I'm not saying that blessings are bad. I'm just saying that we need to be aware of others in the way we interact socially and make sure that we don't sort of accidentally, uh, you know, exclude people and that we don't create fracture within the community, that we don't end up being a church where the wealthy people hang out with the wealthy people and the not wealthy people just hang out with the not wealthy people and there's no intermixing. Um, so I would especially encourage those of you who do have wealth and do have that status to really put the interests of others ahead of your own. The second application I'd like to bring up is time. Uh, and especially, I think, for you single people. Um, you may think that you're very busy, but you have a lot more time than you realize. Um, and with some creativity, there are some really wonderful ways that you can serve others. Uh, I know my wife and I were really blessed uh, about a year ago before Sophia was born. Uh, we were asked by people, you know, what are you going to do to decorate Sophia's room? You know, I was working full time. Uh, I was taking a summer class at Trinity that was really labor intensive. We were doing other things to get ready for Sophia. And uh, I just didn't have time. And so I said, you know what, I don't have time to really do anything to decorate our room. We're just going to, you know, leave it as it is. Um, but a couple of the singles in our community group uh, decided to organize something to decorate Sophia's room. And the two of them came over with my wife, came over and met my wife and helped plan what they were going to do. Uh, one of them arranged for painting. She organized, uh, you know, several people from our community group to come over and paint Sophia's room while we were out of town. And the other made uh, curtains and made some pillows and other decorations that uh, we could use to decorate Sophia's room. And it was really such a blessing to see uh, people come together and really serve us uh, when they had the time to do it. And it was costly. I mean, it took a lot of time and a lot of effort for them to do this. But it really, really blessed me and really uh, touched me. And we're very, very fortunate to have uh, a very nice nursery for uh, Sophia to, to live in. So last, I'd like to address uh, the husbands of the church. Um, men, we, we really need to serve our wives. And a lot of times we say, Yo, you know what, I serve my wife, I earn a living, I work hard. Uh, but there needs to be more to our service than that. And I think that when we say that, we really need to check our motives. Are we really working hard to serve our wives, or are we working hard because 
Uh, we want to get ahead because we're so ambitious. Is it fueling something else? And are we really using serving our wife as a, a veneer to cover over for our true motives? So there, there needs to be more than that to our service. It needs to be something that's really costly and not costly of our spending time with them or the family. Um, when was the last time that you cooked breakfast or did the laundry or cleaned the bathroom or vacuumed the house? You know, when, when was the last time that you did any of those things? If you don't know how, I'm sure your wives would be very happy to teach you. Um, you know, these are the, the types of things that we can do to really show our gratitude and our appreciation, and it will strengthen that bond of unity. It will strengthen the relationship that we have with our spouse. And uh, one of the things that, too, we really need to develop is uh, a real uh, attuned sense to how she's doing. You know, she may put up this facade where, oh, yeah, you know what, I'm doing great. I don't need any help. I'm okay. When really she's wearing down and breaking down, and she very, very badly needs us to serve her. So you, you really need to develop that knowledge where you can look at your wife and tell you, you know what, I, I need to step it up and I need to help you. And again, that may be costly. It may take away from our jobs. It may take away from our leisure time. But you know what, the, the call is for costly service. Our service for one another needs to cost us something. And remember, Paul in Ephesians says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and laid his life down for us. So I'd like to bring us full circle here in closing. Philippians was written to help the Philippians stay on mission. So how can we stay on mission? How does unity and humility help us stay on mission? Um, first is that obviously we need to be unified. You know, humility builds community, and strong community bonds are absolutely necessary if we're going to succeed in what God has called us to in this world. Um, I think a pretty interesting example uh, has been uh, the Boston Celtics over the last uh, three seasons, four seasons. At the start of the 2007-2008 season, um, the Celtics assembled a super team. They had one superstar, and they were able to acquire two more to build this uh, nucleus that uh, really could go out and dominate in the NBA. But Doc Rivers, the coach, knew that he needed to get those players to sacrifice their own personal stats for one another and for the team, and that they needed to be unified if they were going to win. So he stressed this um, South African philosophical idea called Ubuntu, which is really at its heart about unity, about loving one another, and about sacrifice. And their first season together, they went on to do what the Miami Heat won't do, and that's win an NBA title. And uh, in 2008-2009 season, they had some injury problems, but last year they made it all the way to the finals, and if Ron Artest hadn't hit a ridiculous shot at the end of Game 7, they would have won a second title in three years. And then this season they were rolling on again, uh, they started the season 41-15, and 15, and then they traded one of their core players, Kendrick Perkins. And this absolutely messed the Celtics up. Um, in particular, their point guard was best friends with this guy, and they had such strong ties because they had completely bought in to what Doc Rivers had taught them. And the rest of the season, they only went 15-11. and 11. 
56 games, 15 losses, 26 games, 11 losses. That's a pretty sizable drop-off. And a lot of uh, analysts attribute it to the fact that you know, their unity that they had built, that community, had be, been ripped apart by this trade, even though the trade looked like it made them better on paper. So unity is really, really important if we want to succeed. Um, but not only is selfless service absolutely uh, necessary if we're going to uh, go on mission together, but it's also a key component of our mission to the world. It's when we serve one another, when we lay our lives down for one another, that we become a beautiful, attractive community. It's then that we display very tangibly what Jesus did on the cross. It's when we lay our lives down for one another that we display the glory of God and the glory of the gospel in a very tangible, palpable way that the whole world can see. It is when we live like that, when we live selflessly for one another, serving one another, giving to one another, loving one another, that we truly will, will attract people. You know, it, attracting people isn't about praise bands. It isn't about, you know, great programming, as good as those things are. The most powerful way that we can attract people is through living life of sacrificial service. And it's because, you know, the people out there, they're looking for somewhere where they can belong. They're looking for somewhere where they can be loved. And if they see that the church just does such a good job, people will flock in the doors because the thing they most long for and the thing they most need, the love of God, will just be so palpable. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you so much for the, the gift of your son dying on the cross for us that we might be united with you, that we uh, can have relationship with you, that we can be united with one another as one family, uh, loving each other and loving you and serving you. I pray that you would really uh, work in our hearts to deepen our commitment to you and to one another, that your spirit would work in us and enable us to just lay our lives down and follow your example that we would keep our eyes focused on you and constantly come back to the cross and marvel in amazement at what it is that you have done and just be so inspired and so transformed to live that way for a watching world to your glory. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.